I'd say to anyone who wants to tell these tales, don't be afraid to be superstitious. If you have a lucky pen, use it. If you speak with more force and wit when wearing one red sock and one blue one, dress like that. When I'm at work, I'm highly superstitious. My own superstition has to do with the voice in which the story comes out. I believe that every story is attended by its own sprite, whose voice we embody when we tell the tale. And that we tell it more successfully if we approach the sprite with a certain degree of respect and courtesy. These sprites are both old and young, male and female, sentimental and cynical, skeptical and credulous, and so on. What's more, they're completely amoral, like the air spirits who helped strong Hans escape from the cave. The story sprites are willing to serve whoever has the ring, whoever is telling the tale. To the accusation that this is nonsense, that all you need to tell a story is a human imagination, I reply, of course, and this is the way my imagination works. Philip Pullman, Fairy Tales from the Brothers Grimm. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Today is October 28th. We've got the fire going here at our place in the mountains of West Virginia. And I thought I would put out a Halloween bonus episode. I just can't get enough of all these Halloween topics And it almost makes me sad to move on to uh, less spooky related subject matter. So since putting out the episode with Les O'Dell, who I jokingly call the Arnumus Nature cryptid correspondent, if you haven't listened to his two episodes, definitely go back and listen to those. He talks all about cryptids, strange encounters, and ghost stories from West Virginia. Since putting out my most recent episode with him, I've had a handful of outdoorsmen send me the strangest and pretty pretty scary experiences that they've had out in the woods pretty close to where I am, in the mountains of Virginia, in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and in the marshes of um, in the marshes of the eastern shore. So that got me thinking, what if I put out a special bonus episode on Halloween with your all's folklore? I love folklore so much, why don't I become something of a folklorist? So that means sharing your all stories. So I put out a little message on my Instagram and I've had probably about 15 people send in stories and um, I'm hoping we can do 13 of them on this. If it gets too long, maybe I'll cut that down. So I'm using as my blueprint, I'm using a handful of folklore books, one of which is Virginia Folk Legends. So this book, um, which were stories from like the 1940s, it breaks them up by category, by subject matter. 
So I'm going to do the same. And it looks as though we've got three subject matters today. We've got supernatural events, which is kind of seems to be what, you know, over the past hundred years and before you just use that term to mean anything strange that happens. So that section, supernatural events, is going to cover anything we would say today cryptid related. There are a handful of stories from outdoorsmen who have had strange encounters with strange creatures. It's just uh, supernatural events sounds a little cooler than cryptid, more universal. Um, also get into just some weird experiences in the woods. And uh, after that, the next section is going to be on ghosts and spirits. I've got three stories there. And then the final chapter will be on haunted houses. And we've got three great stories there. Thank you to everyone on Patreon who's been helping out with the podcast. We've had a handful of um, people, some new people help out on there. I'm doing this all by myself and uh, I love doing this. And your support helps me be able to dedicate the time to this, to spend the money to get to guests because I do these all in person. And uh, I really appreciate it. So if you'd like to help support this podcast, um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash our numinous nature. Now, if you all really like this episode, I thought this could be like a side project within the Our Numinous Nature podcast that every once in a while I'd come out with an episode called Our Numinous Folklore or Your Numinous Folklore. And uh, maybe we, throughout the year, we could do topics. We could do, this one's obviously Halloween. We could do Christmas and I could uh, send out a little message on Instagram and you could send in uh, traditions, Christmas traditions, whether you have family from another part of the world, um, you have really interesting cultural traditions, or if you're deeply rooted in Appalachia or the Eastern shore and that you have like a folk tradition. I think stuff like that could be extremely cool. So food for thought, we'll see where this goes. But for now, let's get right in to your pretty unnerving and spooky stories. We are going to begin on the category of supernatural events. Our informant is Frank Renshaw, an outdoorsman. The location is the Eastern Shore, Nanticoke, Maryland. The date is October 17th through October 23rd, 2022. I'm a fifth generation logger. Many stories have been passed down to me. I've always been in the woods and always been around the older generation and listened to the old tales. We found old sawmills from the late 1800s before. We worked in one spot in Accomack, Virginia, where the farmer's family owned the land since they settled. They said the most moonshine out of any county on the shore came out of that spot at one time during the Prohibition. We found skeletons under huge stumps before. The list goes on. Every place I work at, I try to find a little bit of history on it and talk to the locals. Anyways, I had an odd experience last night I figured I would share. I live next to a highly wooded area with marshland behind that has a good-sized Sika deer population. They're starting to move a little now, and I can hear them call right before dusk. I was listening to them last night and heard a few calls, 
then heard a call like something or someone was trying to imitate them. It started with different pitches, then finally found the right tone that matches the sika deer. No one lives back there, and the hunters that do hunt it do not shoot the sika. A couple more calls were made, and the same thing tried to imitate them again. About 10 seconds after that, a really low hum was heard that went on for about 15 seconds. After that, any animal or sound stopped. My dogs were out, and the hare was standing up on their backs. They immediately went to the steps to go into the house. I let them in and stood out there for about half an hour. It was so quiet I could hear myself breathing. Since I first messaged you, I haven't heard any sick of deer and any regular deer. My neighbor down the road came to my house one night around 9.30 and asked if I had seen a 12-point head laying around. I said no, and he said it almost looked ripped off its torso. He looked pretty spooked and came off like I had known who had done it. I got up with him again, and he said he didn't find it. Caught me pretty off guard. I've only talked to him maybe twice in two years. Informant Noah Alexander Bussier, an outdoorsman. Location Ramsey's Draft, West Augusta, Virginia. Date October 8th, 2022, around 10 a.m. My buddy and I had a very frightening thing happen in Ramsey's Draft Wilderness. Didn't see anything, but what we heard was chilling. Thought maybe you'd want to hear the story. Most people I try to tell laugh. I can tell why many people hesitate to come out about experiences they've had. So me and my buddy went to go fish for brook trout in Ramsey's Draft Wilderness, which is a seven mile long stretch of river valley that is one of the only places in Virginia that has never been logged, an old growth forest. So it is truly a majestic place and renowned for brook trout. My buddy and I were about 2.5 miles up the trail when he stopped and said if I heard the noise. I paused for a moment and to our right, up the mountain slope, I heard what sounded like two rocks clicking together, very rhythmic in nature, so it confused me to hear something that uniform out there. I turned to my buddy and asked him if he wanted to go check out what it was. He said yes. So we started crawling up this mountainside to find the noise. That was one weird part, because I'm not sure what made me want to climb that mountainside to find it, but I did. When we got about three-fourths the way up, the noise suddenly stopped. We were bummed out we didn't get to see what was making the noise. But we were also tired too, so we rested on an old fallen hemlock log looking down into the river valley. All of a sudden, a loud noise came from the valley not even half a mile from where we were. It was a loud roar, deep, menacing, very loud. I've been in the woods a lot and I know my animal noises. This was something that didn't belong. We looked at each other in more shock than fear and tuned our ears towards the noise. Several loud trumpeting noises. Then a deer cried out in extreme pain, like it was getting torn apart or eaten. We heard the roar twice more, with more loud thumping like something was beating the ground, and the deer crying out loudly still. I thought for something to make a pounding noise that far away and us hear it was very impressive. My buddy and I after waited in silence for 15 minutes, quietly slid down the mountain and made a beeline out of there. 
Looking back and thinking, it seemed almost like something drew us away with that clicking sound so that the other animal could go in and make the kill. And to me, almost sounded like, with the thumping and all, whatever it was tackled the deer and made the kill. In my head, I made a list of all the things it could be, research animal calls and noises, and one after another, each animal on that list was crossed off. This was something I cannot explain, something bigger than a bear or mountain lion or any predator we have. Informant, Canaan Shiflet. Location, Dayton, Virginia. Date, hunting season, 2008. Other than my wife and the men involved until this point have ever heard this told. I've pictured telling this or writing it out for years. First, let me say this involves my father, my brother-in-law, and myself hunting during rifle season in 2008. We were in the George Washington National Forest in a common public hunting area for the community that we've hunted for generations. This particular year, we decided that we would drive the forest road practically as deep as possible to avoid the typical hunters that are only a few miles up the mountain and within 300 yards of their truck. We decided on a spot about 15 miles up the forest, which this was dumb because we had done absolutely zero scouting of this particular area, but still excited being so secluded, and we were sure nobody had hunted it in years or decades. Dad drove up and hunted the area by himself on Friday morning. He parked on the side of the forest road and hunted the ridge, the ridge east of the road. That afternoon, he came home and said he hadn't had any luck, but the area looked good and that we would all head up that evening to join him. He did mention that while walking in to find a good spot, he stumbled upon a homemade sign several hundred yards in the woods that read in red paint, to the son of a bitch who's stealing our cameras, we're watching. He said that it could have been a few years old or older, but in 2008, trail cams were just becoming mainstream, so it couldn't have been too old. Nevertheless, it made our decision on this super deep secluded hunting spot a little unnerving. That evening, three of us hunted that ridge, parking at the same spot Dad parked earlier that morning. We spaced out evenly, about 500 yards apart on the forest road, and then each hiked up the east ridge a few hundred yards and found our own spot. That evening was uneventful, other than me getting a chance to use one of those self-climbing stands for the first time. Before coming out of the woods that evening, I was taking in how beautiful the area was, so untouched, yet game trails passing right under the oak I had been in. Something I will never forget is that as I was putting my pack on, I pulled out my little bottle of Tink's doe estrus and liberally soaked a couple saplings within arm's reach and headed out to the truck where I met up with Dad and Aaron, my brother-in-law, and headed home. The next morning we hit the same spots again each getting to his same tree before sunrise. At daylight, I remembered to look down at my little buckler experiment, and my God, something had literally destroyed the area with scrapes and broken branches and just general destruction. While I'm staring down trying to comprehend how lucky I'm going to get this morning, the woods explodes with a shot. Aaron had just shot a small buck. We radio each other, meet up, find the deer, gut it, drag it to the truck, go home, quarter it, have lunch, 
take a nap, and head back into the same spot that afternoon. Now, with all this being said, this is when the vibe changes. I'm back in the same tree again, but I'm no longer really feeling it. Slowly as time goes on, I'm getting discouraged, and I'm no longer excited. I'm miserable, rather. Not sure why, just off. I'm noticing that the deer sign that I had disrupted the area under my stand is weird. It's just too much. I don't know how to put it, but I honestly got the feeling in that moment. It clicked. I might be in something's fucking domain here, like a bear or something I don't know. Fast forward. It's getting dark quick, and I'm a noob with the self-climber, so it takes me a while to get out of the tree. I'm putting my pack on and gathering my things. Twilight, at this point, may be a little darker with the tree cover. I start walking down to the truck. I radio Dad and Aaron and tell them I'll meet them there. At this point, I'm walking fast trying to beat the dark. And at this point, all I can feel is the most terrifying feeling of being followed or watched extremely closely. My walk turns into a fast-paced trot and then turns into almost like an aggressive, fuck these briars, I'm sprinting with my rifle type of run. I don't know why this happened. I get to the truck. I'm the first one there followed by my dad. We wait about five minutes before we see Aaron coming towards us down the forest road with his flashlight. It's completely dark at this point. The three of us are now gathered around the truck bed getting water bottles from our packs, unloading our guns. I'm acting like I didn't just have a freaking panic attack walking out. Then it happened out of nowhere from the west ridge, the opposite ridge we had been hunting. These ridges parallel one another and the truck is sitting in the valley between. Something yelled at us. It yelled like an elk would bugle. I say a yell because it didn't sound like an elk. It trumpeted in a wail similar to an old fire hose siren winding up. The elk similarity to me was the different wave-like pitches in the sound, starting like an elk, but low and raspy, then about four or five seconds in reaching its peak and holding this note of a yell for several seconds followed by a four to five second wind down tone. Without time for us to even say anything to each other, it did it again. This time not as long or drawn out, but just as loud. As if you or I were to hold a scream as long as possible, and then we are told to only take one quick breath and do it again. The sound that it made, you could feel. It was a weird fear, like a helpless fear. All three of us knowing that, whatever could have the lung capacity capable of making this call shouldn't exist like a growling elk bugle coming from the lungs of an elephant. Before getting in the truck, we could hear something come down that ridge and cross the forest road in front of us and proceeded to head up to where we had been hunting. Another one followed. It seemed as if two of something came off the ridge and was extremely pissed that we were there. As if one had the other's back while they passed in front of these trespassers. We got in the truck and drove home very quietly and fast. We never saw anything that night, only having tiny flashlights. But whatever was among us that night made it clear we weren't welcome. Looking back, I think about the homemade sign Dad had stumbled upon. I also think about the way I ran like a baby back from my tree stand to the truck that night. And that was before anything strange had happened. I think about Aaron killing that small buck earlier. I think about the insane scene at my little lure location. I want to add that the three of us are God-fearing Christian men with passion for the outdoors. 
I don't know what happened that night, but it scared me enough to not do what I love for a while. And that's exploring usually by myself. Informant Coy Donahue, another outdoorsman. Location, Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. Date, December 26th, 2009. It was a cold, snowy night in central Pennsylvania. We lived in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere pretty much. Only had a one neighbor within a mile. We used a wood burner to heat the house and we had all our firewood stacked out back probably a hundred feet from the back porch. I had just turned nine and my dad told me to go grab some logs out back for the fireplace. It was just getting dark outside I went out and grabbed a log and brought it back in. I went out for a second trip and went through the backside of the log pile and looked down through the mountain laurel. We really didn't have a backyard. It was all just thick woods. There is where I saw a creature standing about eight to 10 feet in height and had dark brown fur. We basically locked eyes for a few seconds and the creature took four massive strides and went down the mountainside. I ran back inside, very scared and not quite sure what to think. We had pet turkeys in a turkey pen, which was pretty close to where he was standing at the time. I think he was looking to get a meal from inside the pen. And what was crazy is there was snow on the ground that night, and I went back out the next morning, and there was one giant footprint, and that was it. It's like they all vanished from the snow by daylight. I've told a few people over the years this encounter, and many people say it was probably a bear or something. That I know it was not. I saw bears every day and hunted in the woods since I was six. I would not have mistaken it for a bear. I was only nine at the time, but like I said, I was pretty educated on animals in the woods. But I've never again seen anything like that, and still to this day think about that experience and just somehow wish I could have had someone else with me to see it. Informant Greg Rivera, a hobby farmer and homesteader with Burning Bush Farm. Location, Tabernacle, New Jersey. Date, summer 2002. Back when I was in high school, around 2002, Some friends and I would often go on what we called haunted adventures. I grew up in Southern New Jersey, not far from the Pine Barrens, home to the famous cryptid, the Jersey Devil. We'd drive down into the pines, exploring sugar sand roads in the darkness, sometimes getting stuck, other times exploring old abandoned houses or graveyards. This particular night, I was driving with two friends down a place called Carranza Road. It's named for Emilio Carranza, who was a Mexican pilot known as the Charles Lindbergh of Mexico. He was on his way home from New York City to Mexico City in July of 1928 when his plane encountered a storm and crashed in the Pine Barrens where he was killed. It's believed he was flying low, shining a flashlight out the window, looking for a place to land when his plane hit a tree and flipped over. There's now a memorial at the site of the crash, and there are many reports of people encountering strange things around there, such as their cars stalling, being followed by strange lights, even apparitions of his plane. 
I personally haven't experienced anything paranormal on our adventures, but Carranza Road often had exciting experiences. A couple of times we'd been chased away down the road at high speed with the pursuer eventually turning around. One time we had headlights following us, then they disappeared without there being any road they could have turned down. It's definitely a spooky place. So back to the night in question. We were driving around some of the sand roads when one of the girls I was with got freaked out about something. I don't exactly remember what it was. It may have been another car that was back there. I began driving out pretty quickly. And as I looked behind me out the back window, I saw a big glowing orange orb shoot up into the sky from below the tree line, loop sideways and drop back down below the treetops. I yelled out, holy shit, did you see that? And as everyone turned around and looked, the orb flew up above the trees again, moved sideways and arced back down. At that point, I hit the gas and we got the hell out of there. To this day, 20 years later, I have no idea what it could have been. Informant, Zay Schaefer, a mushroom forager and fossil hunter. Location, Cromwell, Oklahoma. Date, reoccurring. So this story takes place right down the dirt road from where my mom and grandfather grew up near Cromwell, Oklahoma, which is in Seminole County. On a piece of property adjacent from my family's land on about 80 acres, I have permission to hunt morel mushrooms. I've been there a dozen times, but essentially when I go the first time in the season, I get to my spot super quick, in probably around 10 minutes without any issue. I walk straight to my creek crossing, which is otherwise very steep, deep, and hard to navigate. Once across, I work my way out of the deep wooded creek bottom and up onto a sandy hill dotted with cedar trees, bois de arc, and plum thickets. I first go to my early spots in the blue stem that grows in the open spots, but ultimately only find a few, so I just plan on coming back 7 to 10 days later. But every time I go back, I always have a very different experience in the first foray of the season. I have felt at times like there's something in the woods watching me, especially during times I've almost felt lost. I will be sure I've crossed the creek in the right spot, just like always, but when I get across, I'm not where I thought I was, and it easily becomes a much harder and longer walk to my patch over seemingly new terrain. It's like the woods grow and shrink depending on what day of the week you were there, and if there's a large bounty of morels or not. Whereas it took me 10 minutes before, now it takes 30. So days like this ultimately makes me think of the little people. If you're from rural Oklahoma and you're a Native American, or are friends with a Native American, you've likely heard of the little people. I have a friend in college who swears he's seen and interacted with little people as a kid and seen the holes in the ground they live in. It's also a bad omen that can mean death if you see one, and he's still alive, so who knows? Anyway, if they are or aren't real, I don't care to see one, but I always think of them in this patch of woods, especially on the days I get lost. It makes me wonder if they maybe don't want me picking all the morels there in their patch of the woods. I always leave some anyways. Well, that right there was our section on supernatural events. Obviously, there's uh, some um, themes there of, of Bigfoot 
and perhaps cryptids. A lot of food for thought, especially to those who are out in the woods all the time, hunting, foraging, hiking, backpacking, camping, and especially those who do it alone, like me. It really makes you uh, have some pause for thought. So let us move on to our next category. This one will be ghosts and spirits. Informant, Nick Mixkey. Location, Western Pennsylvania. Date, unknown. This happened to a good friend of mine that I hunt with where we grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Him and his buddy had decided to go hunt this hollow in spring turkey season. Now this hollow, for as long as any of the old timers in the area have known, has acquired the ominous name Hell's Hollow. It was always said that in the area of this hollow, there was an old Indian burial ground. There is an intermittent stream that runs through the bottom where the water runs above the ground, then disappears under the ground only to pop up again. There are dark hemlocks in the bottom, which then spreads into a mixed hardwood stand on the tops of the hollow. They headed into the hollow long before light to get set up in the area near where they had roosted a gobbler the evening before. My buddy went to one side of the hollow, and the other guy he was with went to the other. Now what happened next is where things got spooky for my buddy's hunting partner. As he had, at dawn, positioned himself at the base of a tree, he would occasionally hear what he would describe as whispers loud enough to tell it was a human voice, but not enough to make out words. This continued for a short time and then stopped. As first light began to pop up through the trees, he started to hear the whisper sounds again, but this time they were getting a little louder, enough to hear what sounded like his name being called, which he said freaked him out some. As he continued to sit at the base of the tree, All of a sudden, he said his hair stood up and he got goosebumps all over, and he felt what he described as a hand grabbing and pressing down on his left shoulder. At the same time, he heard his name clearly being spoken directly into his ear, which he then turned around to swing out whoever was messing with him. But there was no one there. He ran back to the truck, and my buddy who was on the other side of the hollow heard the truck door slam and soon he went back to the truck as well to see what was going on. And that's when his buddy asked him if he was calling his name at all earlier, which he had not done. So his buddy explained what he had just experienced. Needless to say, they cut that hunt short. That's just as it was told to me by my friend, who I absolutely believe. Informant Michael Scrogan of Hunting Stories Podcast. Location, Telluride, Colorado. Date, approximately 2016. We were attending the Telluride Bluegrass Festival a few years ago, and we were staying at the Mary E. Elium campground for the festival. It's a 25-minute bus ride away from the music. My wife, her parents, and myself stayed in town all day listening to amazing artists and having drinks, just enjoying the beautiful place that is Telluride, Colorado. After the last show, which ended around 11.30, we jumped on the bus to our campground. 
When we arrived, the other bus riders all went their way to their own camp, and so did we. The roads in the camp were muddy because they poured water all over them to minimize the dust. We got to a place where the pines are really tight, and there is almost no light from the moon or anywhere else in the camp. Beyond that, it is the low point of the road, so water pools there and creates mud. We all slowly began to tiptoe through the mud, trying our best to navigate the pitch black mud pit without falling, never mind while being a bit tipsy. All of a sudden, we hear my father-in-law yell, what the fuck is that? And all of us go from looking at our feet to him. And in the middle of our group is a lady dressed in a long flowing white dress. No mud on her at all. And there is no way for her to have just appeared in between the four of us without anyone knowing. We all screamed and jumped into the woods. We met up at our camp spot and couldn't come to any conclusion other than that was the ghost of Mary E. Eliam because no one saw this lady until we all were in the middle of the pitch black path filled with mud. Informant Danielle Galvin, a folk herbalist and owner of Herbaceous Goods. Location, Nashville, Tennessee. Date, summer of 2016. This is the story of the first time I ever saw a spirit. A little backstory. A few months before, I made a new friend who introduced me to paganism and the occult. She would tell me stories of crazy experiences, and honestly, a big part of me thought she was making them up for attention. Turns out I was right, but the universe works in mysterious ways. One afternoon, I was driving home from getting my hair done. Just a normal summer day in the South, hot, humid, and sunny skies. I was sitting in the left turn lane to turn into my neighborhood, just listening to music. I glanced up into my rearview mirror and froze. The driver in the minivan behind me was horrifying. They had an extraordinarily long face, so long that it went down past the steering wheel. Its skin was your average light Caucasian color. Its mouth was super long, exaggerated frown, like a giant upside down U. Its eyes were black and smoldering, like they were just holes filled with strong smoke. And it had no nose. Its hair was black and super close cropped to its scalp and choppily, unevenly cut. It looked so solid and real as a human, but how could it be? I had never seen anything so horrifying in my life, and I had never personally experienced anything so supernatural. I was frozen staring at it. I felt like I was locked in with no control over my body and couldn't look away as our eyes locked together. After what felt like forever, my light turned green and the spell was broken. I sped off. The car followed me for a while, but eventually turned off. I went home, locked myself inside, and sat huddled on my couch, heart pounding and breathing hard. I immediately texted my friend, telling her what happened. At the same time, my other friend, who is a very strong empath, texted me and said she got a flash in her mind of what I saw and was able to describe it perfectly. She was freaked out and had no idea what it was either. I still don't know exactly what it was I saw. I don't use the term demon because this is the closest thing I've ever experienced that I could associate with that. I can still see it perfectly in my head to this day. 
Well, I hope you have been enjoying these folkloric tales from your fellow Our Numinous Nature listeners. And I hope this has gotten you in the mood for Halloween, which is quickly closing in upon us. While all of the topics that we have covered today are timeless in nature, creatures in the woods, unexplainable events in the woods, ghosts, spirits, demons, these are all themes that have been in stories since the beginning of storytelling. And so is our final chapter, our final segment today. This one harkens back to old castles, to ruined abbeys, forlorn cabins in the middle of nowhere in the woods, and of course, the old weathered farmhouses. And that is the story of haunted houses. Informant, Sophia King. Location, Stewartville, Minnesota. Date, approximately 2013. My grandparents lived in a large and stately 1911 home in a small town in southern Minnesota. They raised all 10 of their kids there. The house was built by a wealthy banker for himself and his family. There was a known story that the banker's young daughter was shaking a rug out of the attic window one day when she leaned out too far and fell the three stories to her death on the walkway below. There is a newspaper article corroborating the validity of this story. My grandfather showed it to me in early 2013 as he packed up the place to move after the death of my grandmother. Prior to this, I had never heard him speak of this, and he always was annoyed when prying grandchildren asked about the girl dying, always responding, everybody dies somewhere. My mom had told me earlier in life about the girl as she had her own separate experiences with a spirit of a little girl in that house. Many of my aunts had had the same experiences. Since I was a little girl, and well before my mother told me about the ghost, I was scared of this house. I was terrified of the feeling I got when I would ascend the stairs to the second floor. It was dark. It was oppressive. I felt like someone was sitting on my chest. I refused to go upstairs alone and would insist on sleeping with my parents while visiting for the holidays. Later, when my aunts and mom came clean about the story of the accident and their own experiences, my immediate family stopped staying there and stayed with a nearby uncle instead. Not even my dad put up a fuss about this. He had often described the same feeling of being watched while he was raised there. In early 2013, I was helping my grandpa sweep out the attic as one of the last steps in getting the house ready to sell. The attic had dormer windows and was always pleasantly bright and was partially finished and wallpapered. Surprisingly, the attic never felt scary the same way the floor below did. We often played up there as children. There was, however, always an unsettling amount of dead flies and ladybugs covering the floors and windowsills. As myself and my grandpa silently swept and dusted and vacuumed all the little carcasses, I heard my grandpa suddenly stop. He was looking out the window, lost in space. Unpromptly, he said, You know what, Sophie? All these ghosts have been good to me all these years. I was stunned. He had never acknowledged even the possibility of the house being haunted. I don't remember what I replied 
but he didn't elaborate any further on the topic. I later brought it up with my mother and father and learned that all these ghosts likely referred to the fact that the house had had another death occur in it that I was previously unaware of. Not only did the banker's daughter die tragically in the window accident, but the banker himself went on to later have a heart attack on the stairs. No wonder my tiny self was so scared of that damn staircase. I finished chores with Grandpa, and the house was sold to a lovely young couple with children who have since restored it to its original glory. I left the place with a bittersweet feeling. While many happy memories occurred in that house, I was glad I'd never have to climb those dark stairs into the second floor ever again. Fast forward a few months, at least. I'm sleeping at my dad's house, snug as a bug in my downy twin bed. Sometime in the early morning, I dream that I'm back at that house. I'm upstairs in the all too familiar second floor hallway. The dimly lit walls feeling like they're collapsing in towards me. In the mirror at the end of the hall, I can see myself. I'm younger now, back to seven or eight, pale, wearing pajamas. I walk down the familiar thick old carpet and hang a right to descend the stairs to the entryway. When I get to the bottom, I'm not alone. In front of me, in the middle of the entry hall, illuminated by soft morning light falling through the stained glass window, is a dark-haired girl, about 12 or 13. The same girl I saw in that hundred-year-old newspaper clipping. As I stare, fascinated and horrified, she opens her mouth, as if to speak, except her mouth keeps opening into a chasm of black, unnaturally wide, dark, and her face twisting into anguish, she screams. The shrillest, most disturbing sound I've ever heard, crescendoing until I jolt awake in bed. It's early morning, and the same soft light is falling through my window. On the bedside table, my glass of water shattered, and the remnants still rattling against one another. I have no explanation how that glass burst into pieces, untouched on the nightstand. I've never been so scared in my life. I've been back to that house in dreams since, but I've never seen the girl again. Thank God. Informant, Sarah Woodhill. Location, Orono, Maine. Date, 2016. During my third year of college in northern Maine, I rented a house with several roommates. The house was fairly old, built in the early 1900s. There wasn't a level floor in the place, and the basement was fieldstone with dirt floors. I've always been terrified of the paranormal, and for most of my life had convinced myself that ghosts and the like were not real, mostly in an attempt to ease my anxious mind. I moved in and immediately felt uneasy. I couldn't put my finger on it, but something about the place just gave me the creeps. My roommates and I settled in, and soon we started throwing regular parties at the house. It was at one of those parties that I was approached by a friend of mine who said, I don't know if you're going to want to hear this, but I have something I need to tell you. I am a medium, and I sense a presence in this house. I stood there, beer in hand, completely stunned. The friend continued, I feel the presence in the stairwell and on the landing at the top of the stairs. The presence is bad. It doesn't like that you're here. 
the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Suddenly, I was in no mood to party, but decided to take a few shots and try to push what my friend had said out of my mind. Fast forward a few months. Nothing weird had happened in the house, and I was actually starting to feel pretty comfortable in the house. At this point, it was midwinter in northern Maine. It was frigid and snowy. One night, I awoke to a loud banging sound outside my bedroom door. My room was the only bedroom on the first floor. It was at the front of the house, and when you walked out of my room, you were standing in the front hall with the stairwell on one side and the front door on the other. The loud banging continued, and I sat there in bed perplexed, trying to figure out what could be causing the noise. I figured that my roommate's two cats must be up to something, and I got out of bed to break up their midnight playtime. When I opened my bedroom door, however, what I saw shocked me. The front door of the house, which we had never used and never even opened, was now swinging open in the cold breeze, banging against the doorframe. The deadbolt on the door was somehow unlocked, but like I said, my roommates and I had never even opened the door before. My roommates' two cats, who normally tried to escape whenever we opened a door or window, were sitting at the threshold of the front door, not moving at all, staring out into the night. I locked the door back up and went to bed. The next morning I told my roommates and they were just as freaked out as I had been. We ended up all convincing each other that there must have been some fault with the deadbolt that had caused it to open. Even going so far as to say that maybe all the loud music we played through the speaker system in the living room had caused the deadbolt to vibrate open over time. That still didn't seem to make sense to me though. Even if the deadbolt had somehow come undone, how did the doorknob turn? Nothing unusual happened after that until we went to move out of the house at the end of the school year. It was our last night in the house. All of our stuff was already gone and we were giving the house a deep clean. It was getting late and we all decided to crash on the living room floor in sleeping bags. In the middle of the night, we were all jolted awake by a horrible ringing sound. We ran around the house looking for the source and found that it was an old kitchen timer in the cupboard that was going off. The timer didn't belong to any of us. It had been there when we moved in. We had tossed it in the cupboard because who uses timers anymore when you can just set one on your phone? So, to find this old timer that we had never used going off in the dead of the night scared the living crab out of us. We all sat awake with the lights on for the rest of the night and split as soon as the sun was starting to come up. None of us ever set foot in the house again. And for our final story, our informant is Heron Wake Robin. Location, Petersham, Massachusetts, near the Quabbin Reservoir. Winter, 2018. I was living in an isolated yurt in Massachusetts, participating in a work trade for a gentleman named Larry, who had lived on an eccentric, rambling property within a dense forest. He is an older man, around his mid-80s now, with wild energy and constantly emerging strategies of social revolution, you could say. He was a smart and ambitious man. The property, several cleared acres with a large farmhouse, was surrounded by hundreds of acres of conservation wetlands and forest. 
He no longer lived here, but rather kept this place tucked away, knowing something big would come of it soon. His family had farmed here for several generations, and upon inheriting the land as a younger man, he had established, alongside many other bright-eyed hippies, a somewhat prolific spiritual commune in the 60s. Of this time, I do not know very much, other than the common assertion being made that these woods were in some way mystical. What I saw of it were the many odd and dilapidated structures that now populated the land, fallow and falling apart, not lived in by people for decades. As one would amble through the woods, they may come across a strange old two-story home, a gazebo, a table, a stump circle, a rusty outdoor kitchen, or a lean-to. I took up residence in the old yurt for free as long as I offered some help with a budding project. He was working with a local group of individuals of Nipmuc origin to build a co-housing community and cultural learning center on his land, for that place had been a village center for millennia when Nipmucks lived there freely. I was hired to partake in grant writing and editing, and in my time there, a ceremony took place where ownership of the land was transferred. It was my job to find more funding for building, and in turn, I was gifted a cord of wood and a place to stay. These are the logistics that led me to hover here for the winter and spring of 2018. Speckled between the wooden structures in the forest were stone walls, stone basements, stone chimneys, and many unknown stone structures that could have constituted homes or places to reside. These stone sculptures had withstood time. I would have assumed these were like the many stone walls you would see lining the roadside and trailside of Massachusetts from colonial farms, but these were elaborate and abundant in a uniquely different way. I spent most mornings and evenings gliding through the snow on my skis or trudging with snowshoes and happened upon a mysterious hole in the ground. The structure, the most intact I ever found, was an underground tunnel which descended into the earth by stone stairs, then sharply veering right and turned a corner. One would enter into an underground room about four feet across and four feet high, large enough to crawl within and sit before opening out the other side with a symmetrical staircase leading up. In my uncertainty, I ventured carefully down the steps, but never within the space below, for it felt both deeply precious and preyed upon, certainly inhabited by unknown dense memories and happenings. All was so quiet and alone. This, the whole forest, was a place where something had happened, and I was living in the aftermath of the apocalypse. One week, there was a terrible snowstorm. I had my car parked down a short path from the yurt, but the long dirt driveway which led me to that spot was completely impassable. I was in the habit of meeting my mentor friend Larry at the local country store for scones and coffee to discuss the work for the next few days and to access electricity and Wi-Fi. But due to this weather, I was unable to travel anywhere but by foot, which on snowshoes was hardly much distance. I would drag my sled back and forth from the farmhouse to the yurt, which spanned about half a mile, hauling two five-gallon jugs of water. The farmhouse had been occupied by a man named Will for about a decade, who did no more than keep the fire lit to keep the pipes from bursting. He was a swell guy who had my back. He knew how to tow cars out of mud and to hunt, but he did not like to hang out. 
It was like this that I was alone for about a week. I was in the habit then of running into moose in the woods, making paper mache masks by candlelight, and cooking sweet potatoes on the stove. All I knew then was that these woods were not mystical in the joyous sense that the hippies of the past had purported. It was absolutely clear to me that while much life was lived here, an unimaginable amount of agony and death lived here too. I learned in local records that this had been a violent stop along the way of King Philip's War. When I inquired about the underground room I had found, Larry told me that it was built so that on the vernal equinox, the sun's light would travel through one entrance to the cave and entirely illuminate the darkness inside, while on the autumnal equinox, the same would occur but through the opposite entrance. After rampaging the nipmucks and ransacking their homeland, the colonial settlers used this underground cathedral as a root cellar. The hauntedness of this land was not escaping me. It was very early one morning after about five days of isolation when I had an entirely unexpected encounter. I slept upon cushions close to the stove, and I was sleeping on my back looking up. I was awakened from my sleep when the light from the skylight was dim and blue before sunrise. In my room stood a man. It was dark enough that I could not see his face though the light from above illuminated his silhouette enough to see the reddish color of his jacket and the brown of his shaggy, short hair. He stood in the center of the room. I was, without remote doubt, convinced of his realness. I was certain that someone had found my location, come in through my unlocked door, and intended to rob me or rape me. This was not Will, but perhaps someone that he knew, for who else in the world would have come here? I was overcome with horror, sure that this person was going to harm me. So I remained as still as I could and pretended to remain asleep. I watched him walk slowly through the space. He did not react to me, though I had not moved, nor did he hover near me then. He paced away from my bed, faced away from me with his hands behind his back, and stood as if contemplating. After some time, maybe two minutes, he turned and walked toward my bedside table. He reached his hand towards something on the table, which was where my dead phone was sitting. He again slowly paced, coming this time towards my bed. This entire time, I am squinting my eyes so as to seem asleep. As he approaches the foot of my bed and faces me, my eyes are bulging and I am violently shaking, though I still cannot see his face in the dim light. He leans towards me, bending his leg to come down closer, hands down behind his back, pointing his chin towards me. We are facing each other in the darkness, in silence. Suddenly, like wind passing through a cloud, his body dissolves. From his feet and slowly up his body to his head, he disappears. I can see the pattern of him fading, like mist. I am alone in the same position as when I awoke with my arms above my head and my belly up to the sky, having just experienced the most fear I have ever felt. I am staring sharply into the room as I watch the sunrise and the space fill with light from above. I somehow make myself fall asleep. For the next several days, I tried to repeatedly communicate with this spirit. I sat in the yurt or sat in the snow outside and spoke to him, hoping some vestige of what I said would travel to him. I wanted him to know that I was glad to have met and I am no longer scared. 
I had never had an experience like this before, and so I was not sure how to follow up. In retrospect, I realized that I had never been in danger. I was horrified, for I had been sure that this was a malevolent person. For his body was so strikingly obvious and his presence was so earnestly felt that there is no reason to doubt his beingness in the room. A strange person visiting me felt like a threat, but looking back, he had simply wandered the space inquisitively and looked deeply into things around us. I wondered what his curiosity was about the side table where my phone had been sitting. I wondered what he thought of me as he looked deeply into my face, though I couldn't see anything of his. I wonder if this was intentional, that I could not see his face. Maybe a visitation in the liminal hour is because of the transition between spaces, night into day, where things are not as obvious, but also transcend barriers. I wonder if my time alone had allowed me to enter a psychological space where I was ready to receive things which I had never been able to. I wondered who he was, where he was from, and if he was a visitor, like me. I had a suspicion that he was a European. I wondered a lot. But I was never given another chance to come close to him. My messages were not reciprocated. It didn't seem as though intentional communication was the route to make connections. I wondered what I was supposed to learn from this. For some context, I have had sleep paralysis many times since I was a child. I know the feeling of the unshakable stillness, the dark and fuzzy dream room you inhabit the familiar blending with the nefarious and creeping. I know what it feels like to be locked in place and unable to yell, looked at harshly by your psyche's demons in physical form, and then suddenly shake the feeling and awaken into your childhood bedroom. I know what it feels like to be in that horrible dream, and this was not that. This was mundane, palpable, and visceral. I spoke to Larry after the snow had receded some and the driveway was able to be traversed by Will's plow. Larry was thrilled to hear that I had seen someone and knew without a doubt that I was telling the full truth. He told me a tale about a spirit seen by others, a running person, all dressed in white, skipping over logs, disappearing around the trees. This spirit had been seen by several people, separately reported, years apart. Nothing of the man in red that I had seen had been reported before me. I wonder if anyone will see him again. 